When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 231 of the podcast that is sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. People, it is Monday, March 9th, 2020, and we are, I believe, in the best week of the sports calendar. It is champ week. Later in the week, what I'll do is I will go ahead and preview all the conference tournaments. It is my personal favorite week of the college basketball calendar. The way that I see it is very simply this. There's nothing wrong with the first weekend in the NCAA tournament. It's great. It is grand. It is spectacular. But champ week, from Tuesday until Saturday, we basically get basketball from about uh, noon until 11, 12, 1 a.m. Eastern time. We get the best teams playing two, three, four times, and I love Champ Week. So later in the week, I will do the full Champ uh, Champ Week preview. What I'm going to do on today's episode is very simply this. What I'm going to do is I don't think we have to do a ton of deep dive into everything that, that you know, the big stories from this week. And I think at this point, you guys kind of know where I stand on pretty much everybody be it Kansas, Duke, Louisville, Kentucky, Nevada, UCLA. I mean, I've done all of it on all these teams. And so what I think I'm going to do instead is very simply this, is is I will go conference by conference, talk about the biggest storylines that came out of this weekend, and then from there, um, just kind of talk about what's ahead. And like I said, the conference tournament uh, preview show will be on Wednesday or Thursday, and so be patient there. But instead, I'll talk about all the big topics, and within those big topics, I'll hit on the stuff that you want to hear about, the Ashton Hagen situation at Kentucky, uh, Archie Miller going after Joe Lenardi. I love that. We got a new best rivalry in college basketball, people. Forget North Carolina Duke. We got Lenardi versus Archie Miller. And I loved every second of it. We'll talk about some of the stuff that happened out west in the Pac-12. We'll talk about uh, other stuff in the Big Ten, in the Big East, et cetera, et cetera. I should also mention after that, we will have a great guest. I teased it last episode, Danny Tarkanian, who is the son of the legendary former UNLV head coach, Jerry Tarkanian, joins me to discuss his new book. He just wrote it. It is called Rebel with a Cause, and it's basically his dad's life story. And, and I talked to him about a lot of different things. I talked to him about the high, the highest of highs, excuse me, 
during the time at UNLV. I talk about the lowest of lows, where for people who don't really know the history, basically the NCAA and the administration at UNLV basically worked together to force out Jerry Tarkanian from UNLV. We get into a ton of good stuff, and I will tell you this. I've had on a lot of authors, a lot of books. Some of them I recommend. Some of them I really don't. This one is fantastic. If you're a College Hoops fan, I do encourage you to get Rebel with the Cause, Danny Tarkanian, and he will join me later. That's the rundown of the show. And then, as I mentioned, later this week, uh, we will do my full Champ Week preview. That'll probably come out Thursday morning. I will be in Las Vegas for the Pac-12 tournament. It's going to be a great show. I don't know if I mentioned it off the top, but I may have a mega guest lined up for you for that episode, so stay tuned. All right, before we do get to the rest of the show, very quickly, I've mentioned many times that this show is insanely popular in the state of Kentucky, and so I want to welcome one of our newest sponsors, Dr. Mary Lou Head, the best dentist, in my personal opinion, in all of the bluegrass. Look, it's March, it's college basketball season, and the one thing I love about Dr. Mary Lou Head above all else is that she bleeds blue. She moved to Lexington in 1974, graduated from the University of Kentucky atop her class, married a Lexington native, and even has season tickets to the Wildcats. But that's not why you're here. Why you're here is to get to the good stuff, which is what can Dr. Head do for your smile? Well, let me tell you, Dr. Head has a private practice in Lexington, conveniently located in Summit Square Office Park across from St. Joe East Hospital. Dr. Head specializes in family and cosmetic dentistry, and as as the only doctor in her practice, Dr. Head can provide personalized patient care in a warm and welcoming environment. And I promise you, patient comfort is a top priority for Dr. Head. Any of us who have been to the dentist know that's all of our biggest fear as a client, as a customer is patient comfort, and that is Dr. Head's top priority. So if you're looking for a dentist who cares about her clients, call Dr. Head's office to take advantage of a very special offer. Check this out. For all new clients, you get a free exam and x-rays. That's right. Just call up, go online, Tell Dr. Head you know Aaron Torres and say you want the free exam and x-rays. It's for all new patients. Visit her website, www.maryloohedmd.com. That is Mary, M-A-R-Y-L-O-U-H-E-A-D-M-D.com or call the office at 859-269-5386. She is located at 3225 Summit Square Place, Suite 150 in Lexington, and I want to thank Dr. Head for being a sponsor of today's show. All right, let's get to the meat and potatoes of the show, and as I said a minute ago, uh, you know what I think I'm going to do is a little bit different today. What I'm going to do is kind of jump conference by conference, just talk about what happened, the important narratives, the important storylines, because I do feel like this was one of the first weekends where people that are the casual college basketball fans are maybe just jumping in, maybe seeing some of the West Coast teams for the first time, maybe seeing some of the small conference teams for the first time, and I kind of just want to go conference by conference and kind of just give some quick thoughts on each one. I don't plan, I don't plan on spending more than four, five, six minutes on each conference, and then we'll wrap and we'll get to Danny Tarkanian. I want to start with the SEC. Because to me, the SEC had the most compelling narrative coming into the weekend and coming out of the weekend, and that was those Kentucky Wildcats. And the story, of course, was not that Kentucky went to Florida and beat the Florida Gators, but instead, it was basically how it happened. And you already know how it all happened. It very simply happened in this manner. 
is that it really does go back to Wednesday night or Tuesday night, I guess it was, when Kentucky hosted Tennessee. And I talked about it on the last episode, but Kentucky hosts Tennessee. They're on like a million game win streak. They've been unbelievable. They've basically been lights out since the South Carolina game in early January. They come into that game, they build a 17 point lead and they end up losing to Tennessee. Okay, bad news, whatever, life goes on. Well, it gets worse because we find out after the game that John Calipari and the starting point guard Ashton Hagens got into a little bit of a dust up and it doesn't sound good. And, I, you know, credit to my buddy Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio. As best I know, the first that I heard of this story came via a caller on his radio show that basically said that Ashton Hagens moping on the bench, not very happy. John Calipari sends, you know, pushes him to go back in the game and Ashton Hagens says he's not going in. And so John Calipari basically says, you can either go into the game or get to go into the locker room. So he goes in the game, Kentucky falls apart, they end up losing the game. Okay, whatever, life moves on, whatever. As I said in the last episode, it's late in the season, it's June, stuff happens, you move on, okay? Just one issue. Um, we find out later, uh, not later, we find out right before tip-off of the Florida game that maybe it's a little bit bigger than I made it out to be, and that Ashton Hagens has asked for some time away from the team, and he is not traveling with the team to Florida. And I'll be honest, when I heard that Ashton Higgins was not going to Florida, I said, well, Kentucky's going to lose this game. It's funny, if you follow me on Instagram and you've seen my Instagram picks, I actually picked Kentucky as one of my favorite bets of the day. And then when I heard the Ashton Higgins news was, was that he wasn't playing, I immediately go to Instagram and say, if you have not bet this game, do not bet this game because I think Kentucky is going to lose. And it's no disrespect to the other guys on the roster, but it's very simply this is that if you've watched Kentucky all year, and I think the vast majority of people listening to this show do, you know that uh, Ashton Higgins, I think, is the most important player to the University of Kentucky. And statistically, you could say Emmanuel Quickly certainly been better. Nick Richards has certainly been better. But Ashton Higgins is kind of the quote-unquote head of the snake uh, on both offense and defense. He runs the offense. He allows all the other guys to be the best version of themselves. Emmanuel quickly can handle the ball. Tyrese Maxey, as we saw on Saturday, can handle the ball. But those guys are better off the ball scoring and letting uh, letting Ashton Hagen set them up. Ashton Higgins is, of course, the best defensive uh, player maybe on the team as well, coming off a year in which he was the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. And so why do I bring all this up? It's to very simply say that when I saw that Ashton Higgins wasn't playing, I said, Kentucky's got no shot. It also made what happened later that afternoon that much more incredible as Kentucky beats Florida. But again, it's not just that they beat Florida. It's that as everybody listening to this podcast knows, one, they were coming off a loss. Two, they fell down. They're without their starting point guard. They fall down 18 points and they still rally to win. And even within the context of the game, never forget that Emmanuel Quickly, who has probably been their most productive offensive player throughout the season, is in foul trouble. He only plays 15 minutes, only has 12 points, and they still find the way to win. So I do think when I look at this game, I think you can make a legitimate case, and I said this on Twitter, that this is one of the great regular season wins of the John Calipari era. And I don't think that, you know, when you think about the great regular season wins, you think about games against Duke or North Carolina or Kansas or Michigan State or whoever, but I think when you look at the context of this game, the context does matter. As I said, they're coming off a loss. They are in a situation where the starting point guard did not travel with the team, asked to be away from the team. They fall down by 18 points against a team that desperately needs to make a run to make the NCAA tournament, and they still find a way to win. And so I think when you add all that up, it becomes one of the greatest wins for this reason. Because if Kentucky does not win that game, 
there is so much controversy going into this champ week, right? If Kentucky loses this game, they've lost two in a row, the sky is falling, when is Ashton Hagens coming back, is he coming back, what's the deal, what's wrong with them, are they going to turn around in Nashville, whatever. It becomes a national story, it becomes maybe the biggest story in college basketball, instead they come back and win. Um, I think to me what it also says, and I know this is going to sound super corny and cliche like sports writer guy, I think it says that this team has you know, something you know, inside their chest. I think they have, and again, I know it sounds cliche, but the heart of a champion. And like, I know that's such a cliche, like corny sports writer, sports broadcaster thing to say, but there was every opportunity for that team when they fell down early, a rowdy environment, the rowdy reptiles, Florida, to just say, you know what, screw it, Let, we'll be back, it, it happens, we fell down, uh, let's just rally, let's just go home, let's just pack up and get out of here and get ready for the SEC tournament. That's what most teams would have done, and it's completely acceptable. But for this team to rally without their starting point guard, without Ash, or without Emmanuel Quickly, their best player, basically on the court the entire second half, you know what that says to me? That says that this team is mentally tough and they're physically tough, and no matter what gets thrown their way, they are going to be ready for it in the next month. I would also say this really quick, and I'll wrap up on Kentucky. I know a lot of you guys that aren't Kentucky fans, oh, you talk about Calipari too much. You're too nice. You all, you'll ne you never say anything mean about Calipari. And it's nights like tonight where it's like, you know, like I hate to say it, but like like this is why Cal like like this is why I I never really criticize Calipari cuz what is there to criticize? Yes, they lose games early in the season, but every year, every moment, every big game when the when it matters the most, in March, in the SEC tournament, in the SEC with it with a regular season championship on the line, in the NCAA tournament, you basically always get Calipari's team's best performances. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to win the national championship every year because very few people do. Uh, there's only one team that wins it every year. Very few teams even have a chance, and Calipari always has them in the conversation. I would also take it a step further. This, this week, this game showed how good of an, I don't know about X's and O's, but a, a talent developer John Calipari is. Keep in mind, Keon Brooks, who was literally unplayable a month ago, scores 10 points. Johnny Juzang, off the bench, scores 10 points. And Kentucky does not win this game without them. So I give Calipari credit, but mostly I give those players credit for rallying, for doing what they need to do to win that big game. couple quick thoughts as we transition out of the SEC. One, Ashton Hagens. I know I've said all along the last, you know, four, five, six minutes that, um, you know, that he had asked to be away. I'm just going to share my personal opinion right now. I have no sourcing on this. This is just something that I was reading between the tea leaves. If you watched Ashton Hagens' behavior on Saturday, as soon as John Calipari posted the tweet saying that he wasn't traveling with the team, Ashton Hagens is underneath John Calipari up in his mentions, basically saying, "Love you, coach. Go get him, boys." All that stuff. When Kentucky rallied, I forget if it was Instagram or Snapchat, I saw a little video on Twitter pop up of Ashton Hagens yelling and screaming and cheering. And so I only bring that up because to me, what this feels like, I know that they said that he stepped away from the team. This felt like a one-game suspension. Ashton Hagens did not feel like a kid that needed to be away from the team. He felt like a kid that was punished, that felt bad, that felt guilty, and that was why he was running to social media to let everybody know that he had his teammates back. That's just a speculative guess, but I'm saying all this to say that I expect to see him in Nashville at the SEC tournament ready to go. Last thought, Florida. 
listen, I've done the Mike White, crush Mike White thing, you know, a couple times this year and, and like, whatever, you know, it's, it is who I am. And, and I have to be honest with my audience. And I had somebody comment, Oh, you know, you're so hard on Mike White and he's never going to come on your podcast. And I'm like, I don't really care about having him on my podcast. I don't do the podcast to make friends. I do the podcast because I need a platform to share my personal opinions about sports, you know, especially this time of year, college basketball, and I have to be 100% honest. And so, yes, I've been critical of Mike White. I don't think I, I don't get the speculation that he's a bad person or a bad husband or a bad father or doesn't, the kids don't like playing for him, but I got to call a spade a spade and say, this guy, for the most part, has been very disappointing at Florida. And while I don't think Saturday's game is going to cost him his job or even put him on the hot seat or anything like that, they're going to make the NCAA tournament for reasons I'm not totally sure of, but neither here nor there. Um, I do think if you're a Florida fan, and we have some Florida fans that listen to this show, like I'm telling you, if you're a Florida fan, you kind of got to look at this game, and this was my thought as I was watching it. If you're a Florida fan, I don't know how you can ever trust Mike White after this game. And that might sound crazy, but Mike White is now, I believe, in his fifth year at this school. They've made NCAA tournaments. They've won games when they've gotten there. So this is not like a Shaka Smart, sky is falling, this team is terrible thing. But at the same time, Mike White had a preseason top 10 team. They have largely underachieved. As I said on previous shows, they've come out for so many games this year, just completely flat, completely unprepared. A couple weeks ago at Tennessee, uh, you know, when they played UConn, when they played Utah State earlier this year. And so I have to call a spade a spade. And if I'm a Florida fan, I look at Saturday's result and I say, I don't know how I can ever trust this guy again, because you are fighting for your tournament life. You are battling. You have the best team in the league up 18 points with like 12 minutes to go. You got to put that game away. And so I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying that Mike White is going to get fired. I'm not saying that he's a terrible human being. But what I am saying is I do think it's fair to question like what is the ceiling of Florida if in the biggest game of the season you have an 18-point lead at home with a really good team and you can't put them away. It's fair to question you. I know that Florida was playing without Kerry Blackshear for a big stretch. He hurt his hand. But guess what? Kentucky was playing without their starting point guard. Their best scorer was on the bench in foul trouble and they still found a way to win. All right, let's transition to the Big Ten. Big Ten had a fun little weekend because three teams ended up winning, sharing the Big Ten title, Maryland, Michigan State, and Wisconsin. But that wasn't really the biggest story. We all know what the biggest story was. That was my boy Archie Miller going after Joe Lenardi after Indiana's loss to Wisconsin. And for some context here, basically it very simply boils down to this is that Joe Lenardi does his bracket. I, you know, Listen, I don't claim to be a bracketologist. I get it. It's a thankless job. You're basically going to have every fan base mad at you all the time. I don't know Joe Lenardi. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. But he's basically, for about the last three weeks or so, pretty consistently had Indiana in either the first four, the last four in, the first four out, right on the cut line, playing in a playing game, and apparently after this game, Archie Miller snapped. And I don't know exactly where uh, the question came from. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But here's what you need to know. He basically called Joe Lenardi Sesame Street character. I'm going to read just a little bit of it. He says, if you watch Sesame Street and you listen to all the characters on Sesame Street talk and everyone goes, uh, 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 when you listen to the guys on Sesame Street, it's a children's show. Every bracketology is a children's show. 
Bottom line, what our resume is, I'm not going to get into all this, but he ended with this. This was his final line. As he's walking away from the podium, Archie Miller says, when I was in the Atlantic 10, Joe Lenardi was my best friend. Now he's crapping on Indiana to get all the people to watch his Sesame Street show. Now he can go back in the trash can where he came from. Archie Miller, my boy, what's up, Archie Miller? He just called Joe Lenardi a Sesame Street character and to go back into his trash can. And what I'll tell you is this, is listen, I can already tell you, all the other college basketball podcasts are going to you know, make fun of Archie Miller and crack bad jokes and try to be funny, but none of those guys are actually really that funny. AT is actually probably the funny one. Um, but with that being said, the reason I bring it up is very simply this, is that I actually agree with Archie Miller. And I'm actually going to defend Archie Miller because no one else in the media will, right? Everyone in the media either works at ESPN and loves Joe Lenardi or they want to make fun of Archie Miller because it's going to be funny and it's going to play well on Twitter. But I'll tell you this, I actually think Archie Miller is right. So first of all, he, Archie Miller in that speech about Joe Lenardi living in a trash can, which is incredible, by the way, um, he says, he basically lays out Indiana's resume. And he says, um, you know, these are, this is who we've beaten. This is how we scheduled, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we are not an at-large. We are not a bubble team. And what I will say in defense of Archie Miller, I don't claim to be a bracketologist, but what I can definitively tell you is that there is literally nothing on Indiana's resume that reflects that they are actually a bubble team. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, their win-loss record, while it's not great, Archie Miller brings up this point. Indiana is 19-11 and 11 overall, 9-11 and, and in the Big Ten. And Archie Miller brings up a very important point. Big Ten or conference win-loss record does not matter. The NCAA Tournament Selection Committee has said that. Being below 500 in conference does not matter. The NCAA Tournament Selection Committee has said that. The fact that Indiana played 20 league games is going to be factored. The fact that Indiana has struggled, I believe they've lost 10 of their last 12 down the stretch or something like that, it is not factored. Every game counts the same. And so when you look at the full body of work for Indiana, this is what I'll say. I'll say what I just said a minute ago. There is literally nothing on Indiana's resume that reflects that they're a bubble team. First of all, out of conference, they have a win over the ACC champ, Florida State. Not bad, right? In conference, they beat Michigan State, which is one of the conference co-champs. They beat Iowa, who's an NCAA tournament team. They beat Penn State, who's a tournament team. They beat Ohio State, who's a tournament team. They beat... um, Penn State, I said, Iowa, et cetera. They've beaten five, six, seven, eight teams that are going to be in the NCAA tournament. They have zero bad losses. Their worst loss is to a good Arkansas team that was playing well back in December. In the Big Ten, every game that they lost is to a team that is going to make the NCAA tournament. Even in the out of conference, I would also add they played UConn, they played Notre Dame. These are not great teams, but in the computers, those look like good wins. And so when I say that Archie Miller's right, Archie Miller's kind of right on this one. As I've said a couple times now, there is literally nothing on Indiana's resume that reflects that they are a bubble team. And so I will defend Archie Miller on this because I truly do believe that he's correct. And I would also add this on Joe Lenardi. He is the only one that has Indiana as a potential bubble team at this juncture in the season. I've looked at a bunch of other bracketologies. Um, Jerry Palm has Indiana as a nine seed. I think it was NBC Sports has Indiana as a 10 seed. I'm not saying their resume is sparkling. I'm not saying it's spectacular. I'm not saying they're the best team in the country. They don't have holes. They're not a team that needs a lot of work. 
But I will defend Archie Miller on this. I think he's right, and I will also say this. I think that he's defending his guys. Because think about it, right? Like, like to me, what he's doing, while he didn't go about it the right way, well, I don't think that I would have called the premier bracketologist on TV a Sesame Street character that lives in a trash can. Um, like, what he's basically doing is defending his guys. What, his guy, what he's basically doing is saying that every time my guys walk across campus, they're getting crap. They want to know. Every time they go on Twitter or social media or Instagram, somebody's telling them they're not a tournament team. They're not, a, uh, they're not in the bracket. They're not in the field of 68. And so what he's basically doing is defending his players from the media. I was thinking about this. To be perfectly honest, do you know what this is actually a little bit like? It's like John Calipari every Selection Sunday. When John Calipari basically crushes the selection committee for giving Kentucky the hardest draw, that's basically what Archie Miller's doing. Now, John Calipari does it in like a fun, tongue-in-cheek way, and credit to John Calipari, it never gets personal, but that's basically what Archie Miller's doing in just a bigger, meaner, more aggressive way. He's defending his guys, and I think he's right. Indiana probably should go ahead and win one game at the Big Ten tournament in Indianapolis, but I think they're a bu- I, I don't think they're a bubble team. I think they're a tournament team. All right, really quickly on the rest of the Big Ten, um, real quick, just you know, listen. Like I said, three teams have won the Big Ten uh, uh, as tri champions. I guess you would call them Wisconsin, Michigan State, and Maryland. And the only one that I really feel like is worth kind of really talking about is Michigan State, because I do believe they've turned a corner. I've talked about Michigan State a bunch on this show, but I really do think it's worth repeating here, because they've gone through so many iterations of who they are, and what they're about, and what they do, and all that kind of stuff. And so if you go back to Michigan State, they lose to Kentucky on opening night. They really struggle in November and December. They get smoked at Duke, Uh, and I think in early January or so, they they won three or four in a row, and I said that I thought they had turned a corner, Um, and it turned out they hadn't. And, And what happened with Michigan State is what happens with a lot of college basketball teams is one, they face some off-the-court adversity. Uh, I've mentioned this before. It's not something that I take lightly. It's not something that I'm saying tongue-in-cheek or anything like that. But Cassius Winston, their best player, an All-American, lost his brother. You know, his brother died. I think that took a toll on him. I think it took a toll on the team. They had a player that they thought was going to get eligible who didn't get eligible via the transfer market. And so I think the combination of the the mental anguish that Cassius Winston was going through with just trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit made Michigan State a team that frankly wasn't very good until about three or four weeks ago. But as we enter March, they are doing it again. As we enter the Big Ten tournament, they have now won five games in a row. Four of them are against top 25 teams. Three of them were on the road. They beat Penn State at Penn State. They beat Ohio State on senior night. They won at Maryland. Um, and they're just playing some of the best basketball of the season. And what I think happened with Michigan State is what I just said a minute ago. They finally figured out how to put all the puzzle pieces together. And this takes time in college basketball in 2020. This is part of covering this sport that is both fun and not fun. It takes a while to figure out who these teams are, what the pieces are, what works, what doesn't. And in the case of Michigan State, um, you know, their, their pieces didn't really fit early on. Well, they have a freshman named Rocket Watts who's been playing really well down the stretch. He scored in double figures in three of the last four games. Aaron Henry, who plays on the wing, is basically playing as like a, a hybrid 3-4 as opposed to a 2-3. And Xavier Tillman, who shout out to Xavier Tillman, who just had a second child while playing college basketball. Yes, he is a father of two, has really emerged as a center. And so I only bring this up to say that Michigan State is playing some of their best basketball this season. 
I didn't think even two weeks ago that this team was a team that could win the national championship, but as I look at them now, I think they are by far the team with the best shot to win the national championship in the Big Ten, and I'll say this. In a sport where I think there are teams, more teams are, are starting to struggle down the stretch than play well, I will say that I think Michigan State is a team that is peaking at the right time and, yes, can absolutely win a national championship. All right, let's go to very quickly to the Big East. We'll go to the Pac-12 and we'll wrap up. Big East. Just want to give a quick shout-out to the another conference with three teams that, that, that uh, are conference champs. Seton Hall, Creighton, and Villanova all finished 13-5. and five. All three get a share of the Big East title. Uh, I, 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 the only team that I really want to talk about, because I've probably talked about them the least this year, is Creighton. I want to give them credit because on senior day on Saturday, Seton Hall could have won the regular season title outright. Creighton beats Seton Hall, beats them convincingly. And I'm telling you right now, I think Creighton, along with Seton Hall, might have the best chance of anybody in this conference to make a deep tournament run. And it goes back to what I said a few weeks ago. But you look at this team. They have a starting point guard named Marcus Zagorowski who has to be the most underrated player in all of college basketball. This guy averages 16 points a game, six assists. He shoots 40% from the field. Uh, or Yeah, uh, 40% from the field, 50% from the field, 40% from three, and about 80% from the foul line. He controls tempo. He controls pace. And they have perfectly built the team around him. They have a bunch of juniors named Tyshawn Alexander, Mitch Ballack, uh, Denzel Mahoney. And this is just a team that I'm telling you can absolutely go to Atlanta, absolutely can play with anybody. They play fast. They play fun. And what's going to be interesting, they will go to the Big East tournament as the number one seed. Now, technically, them, Seton Hall, and Villanova all split the Big East. But Creighton, because they went 3-1 and one against those two other teams, will get the number one seed. I will be fascinated to watch that. Not much else from the Big East, so very quickly we will transition to the Big 12. Not a ton from the Big 12. I'll tell you this. The most fascinating story in the Big 12, Kansas clinches the regular season title. No big deal, right? They've been awesome all year. Say what you want about Bill Self. Be critical of some of the NCAA stuff. That dude's a baller. That dude can coach his you-know-what off. Baylor, we had Scott Drew on the show last week. I will defend them. They are banged up. They're down a bunch of bodies. They lost their second and three games. They're the two seed. I still think they're in good position to get a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. The story to me in the Big 12 is very simply this. Texas and Texas Tech. Texas Tech, the team that almost won the national championship last year. Those two teams are essentially going to be playing what is basically a play-in game in the first round of the Big 12 tournament to get into the NCAA tournament. Both those teams are in Joe Lenardi's last four in, and you can ask Archie Miller what he thinks of Joe Lenardi in his last four. Um, but basically, uh, what I would tell you is Texas Tech is a team that has really struggled down the stretch here. It seemed like literally two weeks ago they were in position to get a 6-7-8 seed and be a real threat. They've lost four straight coming into the Big 12 tournament. They have lost five of their last seven. They've lost to some of the worst teams in the conference. They lost at Oklahoma State. They lost to Texas. Uh, they lost to Oklahoma in a game that they could have won. And so when I look at Texas Tech, I think this is fascinating because this was a team that we all had in the preseason top 25. They were really good. Like I said, they played Kentucky really tough. Um, you know, they, 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 they were a team that we, I think that I thought could make a Final Four maybe three weeks ago. Now they are potentially playing for their tournament lives against Texas, who's kind of the exact opposite. Texas wins five in a row coming into Saturday. 
Basically, all they have to do is beat Oklahoma State, one of the worst teams in the league, and they will be in the field of 68, no questions asked, no problem. What do they do? They, of course, lose to Oklahoma State, and now they are playing for their tournament lives uh, at the Big 12 tournament. That, to me, is the most interesting story. We'll talk about the Big 12 tournament more uh, on Wednesday's show. ACC, there's nothing new here. Florida State, Duke, Louisville, Virginia, they're the only good teams. I don't think any of them is really that good. Um, and because of it, I don't think there's much to talk about. I think you can make the case that Virginia, which I believe has now won eight in a row, six of them by three points or less, is maybe the most scary team coming out of that conference right now. I don't buy Duke. Duke's lost its last three away from home. Uh, I don't buy Louisville. You guys have heard my Louisville rant time and time again. Uh, and I think Virginia's scary, and I think that's really all there is out of the ACC. It'll be an interesting tournament where it feels like no one outside of those four is really going to win it. The last major power conference, how about the Pac-12? And I did get a couple questions on the Pac-12 uh, this weekend, so I do want to hit on them. Um, and most of them pertain around Arizona, because Arizona was one of the preseason favorites. They had two McDonald's All-Americans, Nico Mannion, Josh Green, uh, Zeke Naji is a third player who could be a potential first-round NBA draft pick. And they really kind of stink. They lost to Washington on Saturday night. Washington is in last place in the Pac-12. And I actually had more than one of you hit me up and say, uh, AT, uh, uh, is this, are, are we sure this is a tournament team? And what I would say very simply is this. Arizona is almost like Duke in the sense that the net ranking loves Arizona for reasons that I can't completely comprehend. Uh, but what I can also tell you is that I've seen them in person three times this year, including a couple days ago when they played at USC. And I'm just telling you right now, they're not very good. Um, and if you're looking for a team that's probably going to be like a 6-7 seed that could get upset in the first round, the Arizona Wildcats are it, man. And I hate to be critical, but this is the bottom line. Uh, Nico Mannion, their point guard, is fine. He's nothing special. I think he, he's a guy, frankly, that should probably stay in college for another year. I don't think that he will, considering that a rumor was floating around that he had actually already declared for the draft, and that rumor was shot down by his parents. But the bottom line remains, he's probably going to be a one-and-done, but he is a good but not great athlete, uh, runs the team well but not at an elite level, and everything kind of falls in line after that. Uh, Josh Green, the wing that I mentioned a minute ago, and again, I don't want to be too critical, but this is a kid that's probably going to declare for the NBA draft. He reminds me a lot of Keldon Johnson from last year from Kentucky in the sense that if you listen to this show, I was critical of Keldon Johnson. I said, Keldon Johnson plays hard, but he doesn't have one elite NBA skill that is going to translate. He can't shoot. He can't handle the ball. He doesn't uh, um, make others around him better. I don't know what he does at an NBA level. And I know that he was a McDonald's All-American. And I know that he had these big, you know, great moments in high school. It didn't translate to college. And I didn't think Keldon Johnson should declare last year. Now, to his credit, he ended up being the last pick of the first round. He got very lucky in that regard to get a guaranteed contract. And he has recently started playing a couple minutes with the San Antonio Spurs. But Josh Green reminds me very similar of that great athlete. I just don't think he's ready to play at that next level. Zeke Naji, same deal. Uh, so Arizona's just a team to fade. And then the rest of the Pac-12, all I'll tell you, we'll get more into the Pac-12 tournament on Wednesday's show. But uh, basically, everybody's fighting for their lives. UCLA loses their season finale um, at USC. And I think it sets up a scenario where... From now on, UCLA's got to win a game at the Pac-12 tournament to comfortably make the NCAA tournament. Not being critical of Mick, Mick Cronin, you know that I've been very impressed with what they're doing, but you have to remember, 
They're 19 and 12. They have a couple really bad losses. Cal State Fullerton, really bad loss. Hofstra, really bad loss. So they're going to need a win, I think, at the Pac-12 tournament to clinch a tournament berth. Uh, USC winning against UCLA, I would think that they are already in, but I'll tell you this. USC was the first team left out of the tournament two years ago, and I know that they are not going to rest easy until that bracket comes out. So that is the uh, look ahead from the big-time conferences. couple quick notes from the smaller conferences. Listen, I want to start in the Mountain West. Shout-out to Utah State. They beat San Diego State to win the conference tournament. I think Utah State's really good. They beat Florida in the regular season. They beat LSU in the regular season, and I think that's a team that can potentially even get to the second weekend. They're tough. Uh, they have a big center who's going to play in the NBA, Nemus Keita, uh, and I really like Utah State. But I do want to talk about San Diego State, and I do want to give you guys credit, the listeners, for coming after me on this. I am officially, it is March 9th, 2020, and I am writing my concession speech. You know how like politicians, it's po- political season, politicians, when they know they're out of the race, they write a concession speech? I'm writing my concession speech on San Diego State right now. I'm done with them. I'm over the Aztecs. What I will say in defense of San Diego State is this, is that early in the year, they were doing what they do now, but they also had a center named Nathan Mensa, who I thought was really the key piece for what they did. If you look at the stats, he's not a great statistical player, but he was a rim protector, shot blocker, seven feet, athletic. And I think he was the guy that created all sorts of mismatches across the court. They could play really big. They could play really small. If you threw the ball into him or their other big guy, Yanni Wetzel, it left three-point shooters open. Why do I bring it up? He's been out and injured about the last four or five weeks. This is not the same team. I watched all of their Mountain West tournament games, And they are basically now just a really good mid-major team. They got a bunch of guards that can shoot the crap out of the ball, and they have one big guy. And without Nathan Mensah, um, they're not the same team. And they, you know, if their big guy gets in foul trouble, they're in trouble. I think they settle for way too many three-point shots. And I think that they're just probably a little bit worn down. They played a lot of guys early in the season. They tighten up their rotation. They're really worn down. Now, I will say this on San Diego State. Their coach, Brian Dutcher, is adamant that Nathan Mensa may come back for the NCAA tournament. He was also very adamant that he was going to be back for the big uh, for, for the Mountain West tournament. So until I see that kid uh, playing, I will not believe that he's actually coming back. But if he does not come back, I think San Diego State's ceiling is the Sweet 16. I don't think that if Dayton wins out, that San Diego State still deserves the number one seed. I think they should be the two seed in the West behind Gonzaga. Really quickly, shout out to Dayton. I've done the Dayton spiel before. Dayton's awesome, 29-2. and two. I don't care what you think of their resume. They have the best player in college basketball, Obi Toppin, uh, and they can make a Final Four. Rest of the tournaments, I think that basically covered everything. I would say this, in the AAC, Memphis lost on Sunday. They are going to have to win the AAC tournament to get in. And watch out for my UConn Huskies, who could very likely make a run in the AAC tournament as well. All right, I think that's it for my segment of today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Like I said, listen, I just want to do a quick overview. I didn't feel like I had to over-dramatize any big thing from the weekend. Outside of the Archie Miller and Ashton Hagen stuff, I didn't feel like there was a ton of like great content. So I just kind of wanted to go across the map and kind of let you know what happened across these conferences in college basketball. Uh, but yeah, I think that's it for now. I'm going to get to Danny Tarkanian in a minute. Uh, before we do, since I didn't mention it before, if you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict is where I listen to this show. 
Do it on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Pod Paradise, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Shane Stryker left the best review in the history of the show. Also, shout out to Haha Doe, who said AT knows most objective guy in the game. So, thank you to Haha Doe for saying that. Thank you to Shane Stryker. And please make sure to leave a rating and review. Uh, also, make sure you're following on the Instagram page, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, some exciting stuff coming up. I think I'm going to have a bracket pool. Uh, details will be coming, but I'm going to have some great prizes. I think some pretty big uh, multiple $100 Buffalo Wild Wings gift cards. So like $200 Buffalo Wild Wings gift cards. So make sure you're watching out for that. Uh, hit me up if you have any questions, but I think that's it. So I want to thank you guys for listening. I also want to thank Dr. Mary Lou Head uh, for, for being a sponsor of today's podcast. I appreciate everything that she does for us and everything that she had she does for the Lexington community. As I told you, if you're looking for a free exam and x-rays, visit Dr. Mary Lou Head. I gave you the information earlier. Um, but it's MaryLouHeadMD.com. And if you go back earlier in the show, also, I'll make sure it's in the post. Um, you know, she is great and she will respond to you again. MaryLouHeadMD.com. The office number is 859-269-5386. A free exam and x-rays for all new patients. All right. I think that's it. I do want to thank you guys for listening. It's time to get to Danny Tarkanian, the son of of Jerry Tarkanian. He talks about the highs of being at UNLV, the lows of being at UNLV, the battles with the NCAA. Fascinating interview. The book is called Rebel with a Cause. I think you'll like it. And I will be back later this week to preview all the conference tournaments. And if everything goes well, I'm going to have a mega, 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 mega guest. Mega guest. So keep your fingers crossed and hope that happens. That's all for today's show. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig, the Australian legend. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back later this week, and now it is time for my interview with Danny Tarkanian. All right, and joining me on the phone now, very excited to have this guest. He is the author of the new book, Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian. He is the son of Jerry Tarkanian, former assistant coach, former UNLV basketball player. Danny Tarkanian is on the phone. Danny, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be on your show and to discuss this book. Well... Let's get right into it. Again, the book is called Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian. And I, you know, I'm a, a college hoops nerd, historian, whatever. I, I truly enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I guess what I would just kind of start very simply by saying is this, is for people that are looking uh, to be looking for more information about the book, it covers your, your father, frankly, his entire life. I mean, growing up, uh, you know, in Ohio and in Pasadena, California, where I'm actually recording this uh, from right now. I live in Pasadena, so not far from where he coached uh, through his college ranks, uh, the NBA very briefly, UNLV, etc. Um, why did you decide to write this book and why now? The book just recently come out. Obviously, your father passed away a few years ago. Just curious as to why you decided to do this. Well, I think with a lot of stuff being reported on the NC2A and the abuses that are going on, uh, and how the NCAA handles these type of um, infractions by big schools and not touching something and, and going after the small schools instead. Um, it's things my dad had complained about when he was coaching that many people dismissed, and now it, it's come to, to light that what he said was true. And also the fact that you know my father was 
a revolutionary person in regard to the type of ball that is currently being played, the, the type of athletes that are, are participating and excelling in uh, college sports, the way they played. You know, if you remember back in the uh, early 60s, there were only a handful of coaches that would take um, inner-city African-American kids uh, on their team. Uh, my father was one of the first, uh, if not the first, to take not only those type of kids, but the ones that had problems on the court, ones that weren't good students, the ones that he felt that if you gave a chance uh, to do something positive with their lives and had a guiding hand over them, uh, they would succeed. And now you see that happening all across the country. Uh, first of all, every team that has uh, those athletes that uh, are dominating the college basketball today. And the type of ball they're playing. You know, my dad was one of the first coaches to play pressure man defense and race the ball up the court and get good open shots and shoot it quick and early. Now you see most of the successful teams doing the same thing. So I think it's important for people to understand the evolution of, of basketball and how my father was a big part of it. No, 100%. And we're going to get into all the elements of it. You talk a lot about his battles with the NCAA and obviously – uh, for somebody like myself who was a little bit young, uh, it was very eye-opening, uh, very discouraging in a lot of regards. But I want to start with the good times because uh, there were some great times. I mean, four Final Fours that your dad coached in, uh, nas- national championship in 1990, obviously number one team in the country throughout the 91 season. Really quick, take us back. We got a lot of younger listeners that are too young. I mean, even myself, it was a little bit before I was really kind of cognizant of what was going on in college hoops. Take us back to the best times, to whatever you envision the year or years or moments were, because uh, you know we're talking about a program that was you know top ten in the country in this city that was kind of rebellious as it was, but also you had celebrities courtside, you had the Shark Tank, you had the 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 electric light intro. Uh, it really is a trip to go back on YouTube and watch a lot of what you guys were doing even back then. Yeah, and I spent a good amount of the book trying to describe that because it, it's, it, it's never happened before. I don't think it'll happen again. All the perfect uh, storm happened, and they all came together. You know, first of all, you were in the entertainment capital of the world in uh, Las Vegas, and also in a community that reputation wasn't very good. They, uh, in the 70s, it was Las Vegas was known for the mob and prostitution, and in comes a coach who's been fighting the NCAA, who's a battle the media uh, was expected, the, his, the perception of his reputation. And uh, he comes into uh, UNLV, and at, at the time he, he first came to UNLV, he didn't play a real exciting brand of basketball. He was a zone coach. In fact, uh, they almost upset UCLA in his third year at Long Beach playing a 1-2-2 zone, and John Wooden said it was the greatest zone he ever played. But because he lost his big center before the 75-76 season, he changed his entire style of play. Uh, he had a bunch of real quick athletes, so they started full-court pressing, creating turnovers, getting cheap baskets on turnovers, and also shooting the ball quickly when they were open up the court. And he created the most exciting brand of basketball in the entire country. And I don't just say that because I'm the son. The facts uh, show this. They averaged 108 and 110 points per game in those two seasons without the three-point line or the shot clock. It was the most exciting things you've ever witnessed. And then you did this at a, uh, in, in, again, the entertainment capital of the world, but you did it with a, a university that was really great at doing promotional stuff and, and getting things out there. In the early, in the early 70s, they started a, a pregame show at UNLV, which is a multi-cutter light show. We ran out of a red carpet. And as the years went by, they added fireworks. As you mentioned, the laser shark out there. It was the most exciting pregame show ever done. And in fact, many of the NBA teams now copy that. And before music videos were popular anywhere, even MTV, 
there was a music video on UNLV in 1983-84 called Running Rebel Fever, and then one in 86-87 called Walk Like a Tartine, and named after the Bengals, Walk Like a Egyptian. No basketball program in the country's ever had that. And finally, there's never been a program in the country whose mascot that they used at games was named after the coach and not the university. You know, these mascots were rebel, but uh, when my father was coaching and winning uh, big time, they, they, the mascot was an actual shark because he named Clark the Shark. You throw all that together along with the fact that all the big celebrities were coming to the UNLV games, sitting in the front row. This is before showtime with the Lakers. We had uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, Diana Ross uh, coming to the games. Any of them came to practices. We had some singing the national anthem. Uh, it was really an amazing uh, experience. and. Uh, it's hard to explain it, uh, and I did the best I could the books so people could understand uh, what a truly exciting time it was in Las Vegas. What about the community itself? Because, you know, what I always say, and, and I live in L.A., and I've gone to, you know, I go to Vegas three, four times a year for work functions. I'm actually coming out for the Pac-12 tournament next week, et cetera. Um, but, you know, Vegas now is a lot different in the sense that Golden Knights are there, the Raiders are coming. Um, you know, there's there's – it's still the entertainment capital of the world, but it feels to me more almost communal, right? Like you have things that are, you know, unique to Vegas. Again, the Golden Knights, the Raiders, et cetera. Back then it was only UNLV basketball. How important was that program to the city? Because I feel like it's comparable. I grew up in Connecticut. The UConn Huskies are everything in the entire state of Connecticut. And I feel like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's how the community embraced your, your dad's team. That's exactly the case of UNLV and in Las Vegas. Uh, the um, the um, university, uh, the entire community lived in die rebel basketball. In fact, when they went to the Final Four in 1977, they said the Tropicana Hotel stopped taking gambling bets for the entire basketball game. It was wow. the first time that happened since JFK had been assassinated. Uh, when we lost the national championship, the, the, the Final Four game to Duke in 1991, when we were upset, the entire town was like a board. Uh, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing people's heads down and hardly talking to anybody. The year before, when they won the national championship, the entire town was celebrating. It was a party. There was nothing else in town but Rebel basketball that people cared about. As you mentioned now, the city's evolved. When my father first got there, there was 350 to 500,000 people. Now there's three million. There were no other sports programs. You go to Vegas night hockey game now, and you see a lot of the same excitement that you saw in Rebel basketball, um, whatever twenty years, thirty years before. Uh, but back then, you saw it in the town that was about one fifth the size. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in the book, but also just a lot of bad stuff. And and your father, really, for lack of a better term really his entire career really battled with the NCAA. It, it is part of the book, so I do want to allow you the platform to, to talk about it a little bit. Um, for people who don't know, basically, long story short, essentially his entire career he was in a battle with the NCAA. He eventually, towards the end, won a lawsuit against them for defamation, which means that basically they were essentially, for lack of a better term, making stuff up about him. You're the lawyer, not me. I'll let you put it into you know, smarter terms than that. Um, but you know, just, just where did it stem from and why could, why were they just constantly on this man's back? Uh, and you know, how did he handle it on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I know that's a great question. And, and it's a part of the book that I wanted to make real clear to the viewers because I should say the readers, because, uh, there's been so much misconception with regards to that. You know, my dad had a reputation of, of going out and having kids put on probation. People figured he was 
committed major violations, and that wasn't the case. I listed in the book all of the allegations the NC Trade made, and not one of them dealt with giving large sums of money, cars, or anything else of substantial value by my father, his assistant coaches, or any of the boosters. And he was, he was under full official uh, investigation 16 of his 31 years. There's no other program in the country that could have withstood that. But what my father did do, and he admitted to it, he committed a bunch of minor violations so that his kids could live at the same type of level as the other kids in college were living. For the uh, readers that don't understand, or the listeners on the show that don't understand the background of the NC2A, the NC2A enforcement arm was formed in 1950, and back then the kids that were going to college were from the food families that had discretionary income and could pay for that when they went to college. Well, in the early 60s, uh, the poor inner-city African-American kids that didn't have any money at all, and in fact, the parents needed money to pay for the family at home, let alone helping the kid at college, started dominating the sports. And the rules didn't apply to them. There's so many of them that I could go through with you, but I'll give you a perfect example. We recruited a kid named Richie Adams out of Florida Patch in the Bronx, one of the worst areas in New York City and maybe in the country. And he doesn't have any parents. He had a grandmother. He lives in a high-rise uh, um, place with no money. And, and he signs you know, how did he get to school there? The NC2 rules prohibit the university from paying for his schooling, for uh, transportation there. His, his grandmother doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any money. What's he going to do, rob a bank? Of course somebody's going to find a way to uh, get him to, to get a, a plane ticket out. And every school in the country that recruits these kids are doing the same thing. When they get to school, they have no money uh, to put down a deposit on an apartment. They have no money to go out and eat uh, outside of the cafeteria. They don't have any money to buy extra clothing. They don't have any money to go on a date. They can't live like a normal college student. My dad felt this was wrong, that these kids who are providing so much to the universities should not be treated and, and, and made to live in poverty. They should be able to live like every other college kid. And he was an outspoken critic of the NC2A. He complained that the NC2A went after these small schools that didn't have any money that were committing these small violations, but let the big schools off that would pay our players huge sums of money. I go into the in detail in the book of, of the, 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 violence, the shoot, the big violations that were occurring at UCLA and Kentucky and some other schools, and the NC trade went touch, but instead they go out to Long Beach State, Southwest Louisiana, and Cleveland State. And in fact, one of my dad's favorite lines was the NC trade got so mad at the University of Kentucky that took Cleveland State on two more years' probation. Well, obviously, the NC trade didn't like that. They came after my father, Long Beach criminal probation, and instead of my father accepting it and, and, uh, and uh, trying to make friends with the NC trade, he felt it was wrong. He, he went after them. They went, they went through four full, uh, blown actions committee hearings. They had 10 years of cases that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. They had two congressional investigations, all because of my father's fight with the NC two A. Unfortunately, the NC two A is the, uh, the most powerful and addictive organization or the amateur organization in the entire country. They were able to last longer than my father and they forced him out. He went to be at the top of his uh, profession. He was 60 years old at one uh, uh, 96 games, a lost seven over the past three years, and it was able to force him out of uh, the position that he had built himself. Yeah, and it's crazy because I was thinking about this, and you do talk about it in the book, but um, you know, he wins the national championship in 1990. And by the end of the 91 season, which resulted in a Final Four nearly back-to-back national champions, basically he was forced out. Um, you know, it'd be the equivalent of, you know, Bill Self has the number one team in the country this year, and a year from now he's out of a job. It's kind of crazy to think about. Um, why do you think 
Uh, the, the only difference is Bill Self, if it's true, and I don't know if it's true, there's tape recordings of them paying large sums of money or at least working with the shoe company to pay large sums of money for plays to go there. As I mentioned, in all of the investigations on my father, four of them, over 16 years, the most expensive investigations ever, the NC Trade never made one charge of giving large but sums see, of money, cars, or anything else of substantial value by he as coaches or boosters. But, Danny, that's the part that I'm talking about, is, is if Bill Self wins a national championship this year, He'll be celebrated in that community and in that state, and the idea that he would be out of a job a year from now just feels preposterous. Now, maybe some violations that come out of this FBI investigation and Kansas is under investigation right now, some of them are so, you know, some of them may be bad enough where the school has no choice. But the point being is that the school is going to fight tooth and nail to keep him, the community is going to yeah. embrace him. And for your father, it was a little different of a deal. I, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't even going to yep. go here, but, but really, a, a lot of the the stuff that happened with him was behind the scenes at UNLV. They wanted to change the image of the university, and so they thought they had to get rid of him to do that. You're absolutely right, and that's a great point. Uh, and something I, I try to explain in the book when they brought my father into UNLV, uh, he, as I mentioned, he was a controversial figure fighting the NC trade, but so was the city. He was known for the gambling, prostitution, and so forth. By the late 80s, uh, Steve Wynn and other big casino owners were trying to transform the image of Las Vegas into this family image where, you know, uh, it was very respectable. And they brought in the president who wanted to turn you know, to the heart of the West, as he said. And my father's continual battles with the NC2A uh, continued to make it very controversial. And the power brokers in Las Vegas felt that he was hurting the image and they would hold the, uh, the transformation of the image back. Uh, and they basically worked behind the scenes to get him out of there. And, I mean, it's not it's not um, disputed. It's not even hidden. It's this is what was happened, and it felt it was the right thing to do at the time. And obviously, I think thirty years later, most people in the audience would disagree. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll save some of the details for the book, but it is incredible. Basically, for lack of a better term, and like you said, it's not as though your father never admitted to ever doing anything wrong by the rules of the NCA, because every coach has admitted to doing the little he things. Admitted it. Yeah, and but the the. The things that got him, like, like I said, it was basically set up by the school. And you brought up a point, like to start, that I, I was thinking about before you, we even got on the phone. And I thought it was it would be fun to ask you this: is how different do you think it would be for your dad today if he was coaching? Um, because now the public perception of the NCA is different. I'll tell you really quick, and people who listen to this show and who know me and know what I'm about, I'm generally a pretty big support. Not, a, I don't want to say a supporter of the NCA. I don't think they're as terrible as everybody makes them out to be because I do think there are a lot of kids on campus, whether they're soccer players or volleyball players or tennis players or track and field, that get a lot of opportunities because of the big revenue sports. And and I understand there's some structural things that need to be fixed and all that stuff. But, But given the climate now where it seems like the NCAA can't put out a press release about anything without everyone getting immediate backlash, how how different do you think your dad's career would be if he was coaching right now? I think the things my father was fighting for, the changes in the NC Troy, are exactly what the NC Troy is doing now. Yep. Uh, my father uh, said that they, the kids should be able to live like 
other college students on campus, and now you see the NCAA has allowed universities to give an extra stipend check to allow those kids to do those same things. Many of the violations they found against UNLV, they changed those rules now and say they're not a publisher. You know, we, we one of the violations at UNLV was uh, our academic advisor would pick a player up at his apartment, taking to school if he wasn't in class. They called that through transportation, and mm-hmm. uh, now they say that's not a violation. UNLV in 1990 was the last team not to be able to allow their parents to be pay, pay for their parents to come to a Final Four game. When it was reported that none of our African-American parents were able to attend the game because they couldn't afford it, the NCAA changed their rule. So a lot of things my father thought for the NCAA is changing now. My dad was a believer in an organization like the NCAA. He just felt they should have five to ten rules where they outlawed the big um, incentives of giving big money and so forth and, and, and get out of the smaller uh violations that um, that, that uh, every school was, was breaking. So, you know, part of your dad's legacy, like you said, is, is he took, um, I don't know if chance or risk on, on a lot of kids, but, you know, he gave a lot of kids an opportunity that otherwise might not have gotten them. Um, obviously, look, there, there were a lot of amazing success stories. You laid them out. Some kids, even back to his junior college days, weren't going to go to a four-year school, end up at a four-year school, and they have these incredible jobs and prestigious careers and all that stuff. Was there ever anything that he regrets or is there ever anything because oh, yeah because yeah, I, I, that, that's what I was going to say is is listen I, you know I want to be I, I I love the book and again the book is called Rebel with a, a Cause the true story of Jerry Tarkanian and I appreciate you saying listen my dad was not a perfect person but I just wanted to you know for for the person that maybe thinks the opposite or hasn't read the book or whatever um, do you feel like he had regrets and and if so what would they have been? Because he fought for everybody, but obviously some things didn't work out the way that he had hoped. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. You had some regrets. Let me get to that in a second, but I want to give the background on my father so people understand why he did what he did. You know, he grew up in the Central Valley as an Armenian immigrant. Back then, they were very discriminated. They had no money. He was a poor student. In fact, he said, it took him six years to graduate from college, but he hadn't met my mother for 10 years. And he also said he got in trouble all the time off the court. So, you know, but then he had some guiding force that really helped him. He had a, a president at Riverside City College and my mother and others that got him on the right path. So when he went out and recruited these kids, they were the same type of kids he was, where they were bad students, they got in trouble off the court, but he felt if he and his mother, his wife, uh, could give them the guiding hand that he had received, that they had a chance to be successful also. Some of them got in trouble and, and, uh, and were big disappointments. But many of them, of those my father didn't regret. He tried the best he could with them. The Bondre Jones is a perfect example. Kid out of uh, uh, that got in trouble at Fresno State. But the samurai one sword. Dad, I hate to say it, but he, that's the story. Sorry, go ahead. I said samurai sword. Samurai sword. The samurai sword, exactly. Uh, uh, but the one that he regrets doing is is the Lloyd Daniels uh, one. Lloyd Daniels uh, uh, got basically the end. He gave the university and the NC trade the reason to force my father out at UNLV right at the pinnacle. I know he wishes he didn't do that, but on the other hand, Lloyd Daniels is, is, is uh, he, he just stopped being on drugs. He's running an AU program, incidentally, out of New Jersey. He calls them the Rebels hmm. because of how much you appreciated my dad did. But it was a big, it was a thing that destroyed his his, uh, his career. And uh, and I know that he wishes that uh, that he didn't uh, have to he didn't do that because he had a long dramatic career. For those of you that don't know the background, my father, he was forced out at 60 years old at UNLV after going to three Final Fours in five years. And he had his best recruits coming in after that. So, you know, they had a chance of running a dynasty up there with Duke at this time. 
Let me ask you this, and and that that's was exactly what I was going to get at next. Let's say, um, uh, you know, you go through all the the NCA issues in the book, but but for people who don't know, UNLV makes the Final Four in 1977. It's essentially, I think, your dad's second or third year there. Um, and as soon as they make the Final Four, the NCA comes in and says, you know, whatever violations. They close them down. Put them on probation. Yep, put them on probation, and they basically. Uh, the program, obviously, unsurprisingly, there are NCAA tournament bans, there's scholarship bans, whatever. They're not allowed to compete in the NCAA tournament. About four or five years later, he builds them back up. I believe it was 87 they get back to the Final Four, and then, as you yeah. said, 90 and 91. If the NCAA never got involved, if, if the NCAA treated UNLV uh, like some of its other kind of power programs that, that always seem to get a slap on the wrist – what do you think UNLV would have been like from, say, 75 when he got there, 76, whenever it was, to, to the end of his career? Well, I think it's pretty clear because you saw what my father had done once uh, they overcame the NCAA uh, probations. In fact, the same thing happened in Long Beach. He took a team that uh, uh, was Division Two before he got there and went to the uh, uh, lost UCLA in the regional finals by two points in his third year and, in fact, went to three regional finals in five years. Uh, so oh, oh, I want to own back. I want to Dan. I for I want to give people context there. You just said he took a program that was D two, and within a couple years he took them to th- what was it three straight elite eights? Is that correct? What you what I just said? They they went one was a Sweet Sixteen, two were the elite eight, uh, but they lost UCLA all three years, and that was during UCLA seven year run of national championships. And his third year they lost by two points, which was UCLA's closest game they had in that seven year run. Yeah, no, I just want to give people context because I think people kind of remember the 90 team or the 91 team. I don't think people realize that your dad retired. When he left UNLV, he had the highest win percentage in the history of college basketball that he made a Final Four. Yeah, by you know he made a Final Four 15 years before that national championship run in 1990. I just think that the average fan in 2020 just thinks of that 90-91 team with Larry Johnson and Stacey Augman and Greg Anthony and says, oh, you know, UNLV, they really you know hit their stride at that point without realizing that basically had the, not, the NCAA not gotten involved, you know, this was a program that would have probably been one of the preeminent programs throughout the entire 80s and then, as you said, could have potentially continued long after that. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the 77 team... Uh, lost by one to North Carolina in the Final Four. They had five Olympians on the team, coached by the Olympic coach. Uh, they had it going really great. If my father didn't have the falls with the NC2, I think it's pretty clear he won with this, but by far the highest winning percentage of all time because he had that at the time. NC2 forced him out of UNLV. He would have won several more national championships. How many were hard to tell? You know, I am biased. I think he would have won as many as Duke's won, if not more. You think about it, Coach K has been at Duke now what, almost 40 years, maybe longer, 45 years. My father was only at UNLV 19 years, and they forced him out at the pinnacle of his success after uh, the NC2 investigation had stopped him one time. Uh, so I think, yeah, he would have won several more national championships, and he would have been, his name would have been up there with the greatest. Part of the reason for me to put the book out there was for people to understand exactly you know, what he had done and how he did it. The other thing that, 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 that I really think is important that people don't talk about is the kind of coach he was and how he related with players. In the late 60s, early 70s, there wasn't too many coaches uh, in the country that were 
close with their players. They were like dictators and yelled at them, intimidated them. My father motivated the players with sarcasm and wit. I, I talked about one of the stories in the book where uh, when I was playing, we went playing hard in practice. We called us around in a circle, and he said, you guys are all a bunch of bandits. Next time you pick up your scholarship check, wear a mask and gun because you're robbing the university. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was his way to motivate people, and it worked, and it worked for the waffle. What uh? How much time do you have, Levy? You got another call coming in right now. I, I have a couple no. more questions. Okay, no. I don't know. They they told me I got to be off the phone here at, at the you know at the thirty minute mark. No, so. I, all right. I let's talk. Keep, let's keep talking then. Okay, so I I want to ask you this. UNLV, I believe you still live in in. Uh, actually, I want to go back. How do you think he would do? coaching in today's climate we talked about you know just the, the the deal with the ncaa a lot of a lot of things that he got in trouble for have since been changed how just how do you think that he would do in 2020 if he was you know 41 year old jerry tarkanian getting to unlv or getting to fill in the blank college uh in this era this time how do you think he would do i think he still would have had really great teams and, and certainly his style of ball and his relationship with players or what it is today with other coaches. The difference now is when my father first started, he was a pioneer in a lot of these areas. There weren't a lot of coaches that were taking um, kids that got in trouble off the court or weren't good students and uh, try to mold them on a finely cohesive, fine cohesive team. Uh, now there are a lot of schools like that. There was only a, maybe 10 or 15 top programs before. Now you know there's 40 or 50 of them. I, I think that he would have done really well. Uh, I don't know if he would have dominated like he was back then, but I don't think he would have the problems with the NCAA. I know he wouldn't have because uh, a lot of the things that he had fought for want to change the NCAA made those changes. Do you? Th how do you think um, UNLV? I, I wanted to ask you because we kind of touched on it earlier. I, anyone listening to the show knows I'm there all the time, and again, I'm going to be there next week. But um, do you think UNLV? And this is no disrespect to the current staff. I know T.J. Otzelberger a little bit. Um, can it ever be what it was? Because there's fans in that city that, or you know, fans that want it to be an elite program again. But like we said a minute ago, um, you know, we're talking about a situation where there's now a professional hockey team, there's a professional football team. Um, you know, there's talk that who knows down the road there's going to be baseball, there's WNBA. There are other ways for even locals to spend their entertainment dollars, even in the sports community. Do you ever feel like UNLV can get back into that conversation, being uh, one of the top programs in the sport, if not a national championship contender every year, at least kind of, you know, in that short conversation? Well, I think UNLV has a great opportunity to do so. And although what you mentioned is true about these other sports programs, you have to remember the city's at least 10 times the size as it was when my father was there at the beginning. So you've got 10 times as many people that will come to games. Uh, what the UNLV has now that they didn't have in the past was when my father first went there, it was hard to recruit kids to come sure. to Las Vegas, particularly mothers, uh, to let their kids go there. And secondly, they didn't have any, uh, any facilities or resources. Now the Thomas and Mack Center is one of the best arenas in the West Coast. The Benton Hall facility, which is a practice facility, is one of the best around. Uh, all the high school uh, assembly league tournaments are in Las Vegas. The NBA has their stuff in Las Vegas. Everybody wants to be in Vegas. Mm -hmm. so certainly I want to be in Vegas. I want to be there right now, again. as a matter of fact. I didn't, sorry, I didn't mean to catch up. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you? No, I said I want to be there right now while we're speaking, but continue. I, I digress. Yeah, it's very. It's a very exciting time, uh, um, basketball in Las Vegas. The only difference is, is more, it's much more competition now. I think UNLV can be like a Gonzaga is now. They, the UNLV can, if, they, if TJ does a great job and things work out, they can bring in players and compete like Gonzaga is doing the top 20 
uh, top ten most of the years. But to get back to the Final Four, where Gonzaga's only been there once, right? Uh, mm-hmm. um, Butler was only there twice under Stevens. So it's, it's hard to get there consistently when you're at a smaller program like that and you're not at a major program with the resources they have. Yeah, no, it is amazing. I mean, even the, the volume of good players just coming out of Las Vegas. I mean, I know you mentioned in the book, okay. yeah, Greg Anthony, and there was a few others. I think it was maybe Mark Wade or Freddie Banks, I think it was, that were from Las Vegas. But now you got a, a D, D1 roster coming out of there every year. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and signing with big programs. The kid just committed to UCLA. He's a junior out of Las Vegas. The, the best player signed with Gonzaga. Greg Anthony wasn't highly recruited. He went to Portland State out of high school. Uh, which is pretty amazing because he turned out so great for us. And Freddie Banks was a great player, and everybody recruited him. But he was really the only real big-name star uh, to my dad's career there at UNLV. All right, let's do uh, a little story time. you got to have some good stories. I don't want to steal all of them from the book. Uh, maybe my favorite one, and then I'll let you share any that you want to share. But the one where – so we kind of teased it at the beginning, but by the time he left, the administration didn't want him there, made, him, made it very clear. Um, they have a big game against Arkansas, and the AD, uh, he, the AD and him don't get along. And so there's an issue with tickets, and the AD is withholding tickets from Coach Tarkanian's friends. I don't know if you want to talk about this one on air, but that was maybe my favorite story from the book, if you don't mind sharing. Sure, no, and, and there's a little bit of a background to that. The AD it wasn't so much to get along with my dad. He actually was friends with my dad before he was hired AD. That the president of the university had made a decision at some point in time he wanted to get rid of the dad. So it forced out the, the old AD who was real close with my dad. He was going to stick by him no matter what and put in this new guy, uh, Dennis Finsock. And Dennis was not, uh, was doing what the president wanted him to do was to force my dad out. And the university had a, a lot of the real big boosters, including the newspaper, the Review Journal, which they're, they're from Arkansas originally, uh, all going to that game. And that was the biggest game in the, uh, 1990s at the time, it was considered the biggest game since 1969 with UCLA and Houston. Tickets were almost impossible. Again, in fact, uh, we couldn't get tickets for Walter Payton uh, wow. at first. Uh, and we had to go to the television uh, company to get Walter Payton tickets. But uh, the guy who was my dad's biggest booster was um, also the owner of Lormar Productions, which was the owner of the, the, the TV station that was running the game. So he got some extra tickets put behind the bench and uh, even though the, uh, the athletic director wouldn't give my father's supporters any tickets, so that extra seats behind the bench all went to my dad's supporters, and it just blew the athletic director away, and including the passes to get in the locker room. And all that's a true story. In fact, the guy, Freddie Glusman, was my dad's best friend who had all those tickets. And Freddie was a little obnoxious, and he used to like to throw it in the athletic director's face to show him that uh, he didn't have the power he thought. It was it was really a... a, 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 a it was an important story of the division between the city of Las Vegas at that time and, and how uh, the city was able to push my father out because of that division. Very good. You have a favorite story from being around the team, being I, around the program? Go ahead. Yeah, you know, my, my favorite story was about this guy named John Shu Trapp who played for my father at Riverside City College. Well, actually, he came to Riverside City College to play for my at Pasadena. And John Shu Trapp um, had, had kicked out of three or four schools, had been in jail before. He never trusted any white person or vice versa. And he came and he met with my father. And uh, the first thing my father said to him is, John, if you hear what you say, you keep your nose clean, you got a chance to have a great career, or maybe even play professionally in the future. But if you get in any trouble off the court, you're going to be done here. Nobody else will give you a chance. And by the way, uh, my wife and I are going to dinner. Would you babysit our four young children, the oldest being seven years old? Wow. Now, you imagine a guy like my father trusting someone like John C. Trapp to babysit us. 
And John not only thought that was the greatest thing ever and was the greatest babysitter ever, he was a full-time babysitter growing up, uh, <laughs> but it built a real close bond with my dad. In fact, John used to stay at our house all the time. So the story I like the most was about a dog we had named Ace, and Ace was just a vicious dog. My dad never wanted to have a pet unless, as he said, he paid his own rent, which means he had to, <laughs> he had to, he had to patrol the house and make sure nobody messed with them. So anyway, my dad, the story is basically this. My dad uh, had this, this recruit in town named Crazy Khrushchev who just wanted to fight everybody. And he asked who was the toughest guy in, in town. And the guy, they said, oh, they all the John C. Kraft. So anyway, my dad takes Crazy Khrushchev and one of his assistant coaches to a high school game after the uh, after work. And my dad goes out afterwards with the high school coach. And he has um, one of his uh, other assistants take uh, Crazy Khrushchev home uh, to my dad's house, which is where he was staying, in the backyard. So anyway, they come to run out, chase them back into the car. They frantically run the car, lock the door. So they say, hey, let's call this other player. He's the state of the tar team. He's still no ace. So the other player comes over. He comes out, and ace chases him back in the car. They're all terrified. And finally, we said, let's call John Q. Trapp. He knows the, the tar team is the best. So John gets there, and ace runs after me, growling. And John grabs him by the neck, slaps him in the face, out and sits down, <laughs> and ace is down. And afterwards, the next day, Crazy Crucio came up to my father and said, I want no part of that boy, John C. Trapp. He's the baddest man I've ever seen. That's funny. <laughs> so yeah, he, um, and that guy played in the NBA, right, Trapp? Yeah, John played several years in the NBA. And that's a, a good example, probably a good place to wrap on, um, you know, on, on, you know, the impact that your dad had. Because like you said, a, a, a kid that maybe wouldn't have had another opportunity gets to play for your dad goes to a four-year college, ends up, uh, ends up, uh, you know, in the NBA. Anything else, anything that we haven't hit yeah, on? I have Well, one, one final thing on, on Trapp is after his NBA career, he didn't graduate from college, so my dad brought him back as a graduate assistant at UNLV so he could get his degree. And that's the kind of person my father was. He helped his ex-player even when they were no longer going to help him, but just because he wanted to see them succeed. Very good. No, that's 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 a great way to end. Uh, the book, again, is called Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian. Uh, where can people get it, Danny? I'm assuming it's available, uh, all the big outlets. We have some some bookstores, but if you go on Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. you can get it the quickest from Amazon at the cheapest. You just pump a punch in Rebel with a Cause, or my name, Danny Tarkanian, will come up. Yeah, yeah, it is, uh, it is a great read. Uh, I encourage any college basketball fan that just wants to learn more about the history one of the most uh, you know dynamic characters in the history of the sport. I encourage people to get it. Again, it's called Rebel with a Cause, uh, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian, and, of course, his son, Danny Tarkanian, is my guest. Danny, I appreciate the time, man. This was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.